It's time to talk sports. It's Hacksaw's Headlines. A panorama of the world of sports. Stories, comments, and opinions. Here's iconic sports talk show host Lee Hacksaw Hamilton and co-host John Riley. It's a Thursday in Southern California. Who wants to talk sports? We do. Good afternoon, everyone. This is Lee Hacksaw Hamilton along with my co-host John Riley. We welcome you to our weekly Thursday podcast from our studios in San Diego as we head towards a great sports weekend. John, good afternoon. We have a lot of topics. We're going to go a lot of different directions. It's kind of a special day in the world of sports. We're just hours away from the start of the NBA draft, but man, we got a lot to talk about. About and before we do that, set the stage for what happens right at the end as we open up the podcast, the live stream for the people who want to be part of Fans Forum. Okay, so yeah, we have a lot on the table, and right now I'm very frustrated with the Padres. So maybe you are frustrated with the Padres. You got to get it off your chest. Maybe you have a question or a take for Hacksaw. Drop your comment in the live stream, the live chat. Excuse me, the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We'll get you involved in the Fans Forum segment at the conclusion of Hacksaw's headlines. And a reminder, if you like what we're doing, please subscribe so you will get the alerts. Get this. We have busted through 1,900. We're almost to 2,000 subscriptions. We wanted to get it to 2,000 by July 4th week. So we invite you to subscribe. That way you get all the alerts. I invite you also to check my website. It's right there across the top of the screen, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. It is all written. You'll really like what I provide on my Internet website in addition to what we do with the podcast. And remember, share, tell your friends, etc. what we do with the podcast on live stream tell your friends what we do with our written website give us a thumbs up give us five stars if you like what we're doing too john let's get started let's talk baseball for just a brief period of time yeah baseball i mean the, the padres are up in san francisco and the first three games of this series i was about to like blow my head off it was unbelievable jekyll hyde <laughs> please don't use the word pennant contender at this point in time. As the Padres march towards July 4th, they're, they're not out of the playoff race, but they're having a hard time seeing who's ahead of them to try to get to the playoff race. Padres lose three games in a row to San Francisco. Bullpen self-destructs. Can't hit worth a lick with runners in scoring position. Padres finally play home run derby against the back of the Giants pitching staff and finally win Thank goodness the Washington Nationals come to town for the weekend series. Maybe there's a chance to take the giant victory and then parlay it into three wins against a ragtag Washington team. But then they go back out on the road. We had talked early in the week, John, on the Monday bonus podcast that these 13 games were going to decide their fate as to whether or not they could forge their way back into the wild card race. And you lose three of four in San Francisco. And Padres win. Arizona continues to win. So the Padres come home and they're nine and a half out of first place. There are seven teams fighting for three wild card spots. They're the seventh team. They'd have to get hot and they'd have to have somebody else start losing and they'd have to vault a whole bunch of people to get into the wild card race where you say, I feel comfortable catching. The Dodgers catching the Giants, catching whoever is in the other division. So it's a big issue. Padres have gotten much more aggressive on the base paths. Uh, there, there are a lot more bunts that I've seen in the last five years collectively than we've seen in the last three weeks with the Padres. That's good. Running the bases. Yeah, they're getting some guys thrown out. I understand that. A little worried about fatigue. Hugh Darvish has given up 10 runs in his last 11 innings. Really worried, John, about bullpen overload. Get this, their top five relievers have made 148 appearances in 74 Padre games. You know, Stephen Wilson's thrown 34 games, Tim Hill 32, Hayter 30, Nick Martinez 28, even Garcia 24. That's a lot of phone calls to the bullpen over a 74-game schedule that they played so far. So I'm worried about that fatigue factor, both with Darvish 
because he hasn't pitched well recently. And obviously what's happening to the bullpen because they keep having to go back to the bullpen. Yeah, it's insane what's happening with this team. How in the heck can all of these guys collectively be playing so poorly? I mean, you know, Soto's been playing well lately on Tatis, but Machado and Sanchez, now granted they had some good days today, but they've been at a terrible slump. I mean, even Xander Bogarts isn't performing. All these guys, it's like a, it's like almost systemic throughout the organization. What do you do to fix this? You uh, all you need, all you can do is hope they're going to hit back to their averages. Bogart's got an explanation. This wrist continues to flare. That's why he's not what he was at the start of the season. Surely not what he was at Fenway Park in Boston. I don't understand what's going on with Cronenworth. I don't understand Machado's inability to be what Manny has been his first group of years here. And and they need those guys at the top of the order to hit because the rest of the guys on that roster historically just don't hit. So... It's I guess I guess the safest word flawed team. It's just not a complete baseball team right now, and it's it's really an underachieving team right now. Yeah, it's crazy how how frustrating this is. I think who it was either Chris Ello or Craig Elston on Twitter was showing the stats comparing um, Xander Bogarts with. Chris Gomez, our shortstop from the 1990s, and they're roughly on par. And remember back in the day, Chris Gomez was kind of a steady guy, batted seventh or eighth. Sander Bogarts is like, you know, your cleanup hitter that you're paying $280 million and he's hitting like Chris Gomez. Yeah. You had 11 years of that to watch. Holy cow. <laughs> so Padres right now, they're struggling. They're running uphill and they got a big hill to run because I swear to you, the, the teams in front of them, I don't think are going to go on 10-game losing streaks, which would propel the Padres back into the race. Mm -hmm. And the Padres have not shown their ability to run any type of real streak off. I mean, think about this. Giants, flawed roster, patchwork (laughs) quilt, 10-game winning streak. Cincinnati, 11 in a row. Have not done that since 1957. Wow. Last month, we were talking about the first-place Pittsburgh Pirates. I didn't think it was going to continue. but They had a nine-game winning streak. Orioles had a nine-game winning streak. How could all that be happening, a bunch of it in small market America, and our $253 million payroll can't put together anything more than a four-game win streak, which is then wiped out and offset by all the problems they have because they keep blowing games, losing games, dropping games to bad teams, losing all these one-run games. Jeez, don't get me started. We keep thinking they're about to turn the corner, and they tease us. And the minute we we start to feel optimistic, they lose three in a row. I mean, when is this going to end? Jekyll Hyde. Okay, that's Padre Baseball. Big night, and we do cover it all on our live stream. NBA draft night in a couple of hours. And we've got deals that have already been made. So we'll mix all that into the equation. First of all, these are the teams that have multiple picks in the first round of the draft. And in years gone by, I've not seen these many teams control the NBA draft. I mean, you're looking at what San Antonio's got at 1-33. and uh, You look at the Houston Rockets and massive rebuild. They're going to select 4-20. and Charlotte Hornets, Michael Jordan's team, 2-27. and The Orlando Magic, who put to, put, put good pieces on their roster last year with high picks, draft 6-11. and 11. Utah, which has really bounced back in what was supposed to be a massive rebuild season after they got rid of their starting center, Rudy Gobert, and then they traded away Donovan Mitchell. Utah had a good season. Now they draft 9-16-28. and 28. Portland, I think, holds the key to the draft. What do they do with the third pick? If they keep it, they're going to get a really great player. They draft three and 28. And Indiana has got to three first-round picks. So we have not seen this in a long period of time. And there's going to be shuffling because I think Portland is seriously looking about trading out at three to go get veterans. Uh, Houston, are they going to trade back to stockpile more picks? Uh, Detroit has had good drafts. They haven't started to win yet, but they've had good drafts. Are they going to drop down some? So I, I, I think there's going to be some wheeling and dealing amongst those with 
the multiple picks in their pocket. Yeah, isn't I mean, draft night is always just so fun. It doesn't matter what sport it is. But it sounds like the Trailblazers, um, they're going to keep Lillard. They took him off the, the trade um, market. So I bet you they're probably going to trade down and maybe get some veterans. So this is going to be great. But how about the Jazz? I mean, geez, I mean, they, they have stockpiled so many number one picks. So we're going to see three of them tonight. But I, I think the next few years, we're going to see more and more. Exactly. So we go from that. And let's just talk about the top of the draft board. I'm going to throw some interesting angles to you. San Antonio gets the young star from France, Victor Wambanyama. Seven foot four, wingspan of seven nine, is an 18-year-old John playing in the EuroLeague. In the EuroLeague at age 18, averaged 13 points, five rebounds per game. The, the kid is mystical. He's got so much talent. And he's going to play with a really good coach, Greg Popovich, who's got a great history of dealing with international players. You do remember Tim Duncan came from Puerto Rico, I believe it was. And then you got the guards who came from France and Manu Ginobili and Tony Parker. So he's landing in a great situation. Now, use the slug line there, foreign legion in the NBA. <laughs> Tonight, with the drafting of Wimbanyana as being the number one pick, it'll be the 14th international player who's gone number one in the draft. And I went back and looked, because we talked about this a couple of weeks ago uh, on our podcast. In the history of the NBA, close your eyes. I'm just going to run some names by you of guys who came here from somewhere else and what they contributed. Olajuwon, Yao Ming. Dirk, Nowitzki. Vladi Divac. Gasol and Kukoc. Ginobili and Parkler. Matumbo and Drazen Petrovic. I mean, there have been so many great internationals. Um, This season, as the campaign started, there were 120 international players from 40 different countries playing in the NBA on opening night. I mean, it's just amazing to me how the game has become so global. And it's just not playing games in China or Japan or whatever. We're talking about bringing first-round draft picks, really good young players here to complement all the great athletes that we get either out of out of college basketball, one and done, or now out of the high school ranks. It's To me, it's just spectacular. The game is so global. The game has really gotten good. And we'll see the next guy's going to step up. Uh, the flying Frenchman. Yeah. Did you see he threw out the first pitch? Wasn't very Yankees, good. No, it wasn't. At <laughs> Yankee Stadium, and his hands were enormous. They like went all the way around the baseball. Um, but I, I love this the way it's gone global. In fact, I mean, almost all the big sports are going global because of the internet, because of mass communication. It's a great thing, bringing people together. But, you know, I follow college basketball, and there's so many great players in, in NCAA that don't make it, you know, because there's only a limited number of slots, what, like 60 or so picks? It's only two rounds. Yeah, two rounds. So a lot of these go to these international players. A lot of really good Americans don't make it because it's so competitive. Well, guys who don't make it, who might have been a second or a third round pick, get moved to the side because of the internationals. They can sign free agent contracts. They sign two-way contracts and go to the NBA G League, etc. I remember back in the day, I used to work in Phoenix, and I covered the Phoenix Suns nonstop. The draft was nine rounds. Nine rounds. Yeah. Now it's, it's really different. Okay, so I can't wait to see what Wemby is. That's, how they're, that's what they're calling him in San Antonio. Okay. What he's going to be like as a player. And, you know, last year's number one pick was uh, the kid out of Gonzaga, Chet Holmgren, Mm -hmm. who went to Oklahoma City and then Mm -hmm. got hurt Mm -hmm. uh, in preseason and never played. So we got two great young aircraft carriers. But they're kind of similar body build, aren't they? Kind of tall and lean. Wemby's a little taller than than Holmgren. But uh, it's going to be fun because now we got two aircraft carriers coming to the NBA simultaneously. Yeah, it's going to be great. On we go. Next question about pro basketball and the upcoming draft. Yeah, Lakers-Clippers. We got to keep an eye on these these SoCal teams. And what are you hearing, Lee? Okay, there's a whole bunch of things in play here. This story started to develop about 7 p.m. on Wednesday night that the Lakers were shopping and taking offers on Paul George. That the Lakers have a massive salary cap problem, have had this history of injury problems with first Kawhi Leonard, Paul George, now both. And they're, they're going to get penalized financially if they get to opening night with the way this roster is constructed with the cost and the contracts. They're taking offers on Paul George, which to me is a bit of a shock. It's not that they would be breaking up the team 
because if they move him somewhere, they will get tons of players and draft picks back to complement Kawhi Leonard and the other players they have. But that's that's one rumor out there that he is being shopped. The other rumor was that both the Lakers and Clippers were making a run at Chris Paul, who just got traded to Washington. Chris Paul just got traded from Washington to Golden State. Wow. In a, a mega deal uh, for Jordan Poole, uh, first-round draft pick, second-round draft pick, and some other fringe players. That was a salary cap move. But CP3, talk about an old basketball team. Chris Paul at 38 is joining Curry and Clay Thompson and maybe Draymond Green coming back. Mm-hmm. That's kind of a weird move to give up give up a young Jordan Poole. Golden State, I think, was moving money. That's why, because Poole's new contract is like 40 mil, and he denigrated last year, kind of fell apart. And I think there are personality clashes. And so he's been moved in, in a bit of a surprise. He goes to Washington and CP3 comes as a one or two year rental uh, to Golden State. So that's where we are. Lakers are, are shopping other people around. There's all kinds of other rumors that the Lakers are trying to make a three for one deal uh, to get a veteran player from another team that they'd throw in. Their number one draft pick, plus two of their younger guys. There's talk. They're shopping D'Angelo. Russell have not been able uh, to get that. There was a report that the Clippers are on the brink of getting Malcolm Brogdon from Boston late last night. But he's had chronic nerve damage in his elbow, and that deal kind of fell through. So that's where we are. We'll, I mean, we'll see what the Clippers are going to do. I'd be, I'd be stunned if they move Paul George. But again, knowing what they're facing financially, and and the Lakers, some people, you know, I network with say, don't do anything, just let this thing grow. Others say, no, you got to change it again, which would be the third time that Rob Palenka has quote changed the parts around the two superstars, LeBron James and AD. So I put a lot on your table. Go ahead and respond to what you want to talk about. Yeah, the, the Chris Paul move is interesting to me going to the Warriors because I think Jordan Poole wasn't happy with his role and his playing time. So now but he's been banished to the Wizards. I mean, that's a struggling franchise. Um, what are the Clippers going to do? I mean, if you got rid of Paul George, this was the dream pairing of Kawhi and PG-13. And now they're going to get rid of him? I mean, I don't understand that that angle. I mean, those two guys, Kawhi and PG, probably take up close to half of the salary cap, maybe? Well, they're both, I think they're both slated to make $46 million next season. Wow. And that eats up a lot of the cap. I think part of this is dollar-driven. The other part is is the injury factor. I mean, they've missed a lot of games collectively over the last three years. And this, I think, has become very frustrating to Steve Ballmer that this is the second time he's put together a great team that they thought was going to be NBA Finals caliber. First was Blake Griffin and CP3, and that fell apart. And now this, and it's it's duplicated itself again. So part of it's financial. Part of it, I think, is the injury factor. You know, one of the teams that's looking for a third piece uh, that might make a big difference is Miami. And Miami's got four guards Miami's got draft picks. The New York Knicks could be part of this equation. The Knicks have got a lot of young people. They got picks they can use. Uh, The question is, who can take on the kind of cap number that Paul George has? So uh, I'll tell you, it's going to be an interesting 24 hours marching towards the draft in a couple of hours, seeing what happens after the first round takes place. So that's where we are there. Next topic on the table. Okay. Well, we're talking about the draft here and wondering if some of our local boys have a chance, maybe. Nathan Mensa, what do you think, Lee? Nathan Mensa worked out for two teams that I know of. There may be a few more, but he worked out for the Clippers early this week. He worked out for San Antonio, which is kind of unique if they're going to draft Wemby, but maybe they're looking for a backup guy. Uh, I I think more likely he's going to, instead of being a second-round pick, he's probably going to be a free agent. And that that gives him an opportunity, if he gets some type of minimum offer, to pick a team that he might actually have a chance to make their roster. You know, it's probably better to be a free agent than a second-round guy. Second-round contracts are not guaranteed. If you're a free agent, at least I can go to the— Brooklyn Nets or the Houston Rockets, who are going to be in massive rebuild mode, get an opportunity. Uh, either that, 
He winds up on a two-way contract or that he winds up in the NBA G League. The other guys might get an invite uh, to, you know, to play in the Las Vegas Summer League, but that's that's just showing up and being on a team and playing street ball. And I don't think anybody else off the Aztec roster is going to get a chance in pro basketball here. But they might, you know, they well might go abroad to sign contracts somewhere. But I'll be intrigued to see where Mensa winds up. Good guy, a little bit limited physically, not a completely rounded offensive player. You would have thought after five years his offensive game would have gotten better, but he is what he is, but he still can play defense and he can vault and he can rebound in these toughest cement. So maybe somebody brings him in as a free agent. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, we always like to look for our, root for our local guys. But, you know, he played in that that league uh, like the last few months. Was it New Portsmouth or somewhere out? Well, he went to the different all-star game, all-star camps. It was in Portsmouth more than other. Did not get invited to the Chicago draft camp. Right. And if you're not in that, you're probably not going to get drafted. But in that in that uh, all-star format, he did really well yep. offensively. I mean, he was scoring double digits. I mean, if he just can be like a, you know, eight to 10 points a game kind of guy, he has value in the NBA. Shot blocker, rebounder. That, yeah. That's on his driver's license. So For that's sure. where it goes there. Okay. From that, uh, let, let's Tell everybody again, before we go to the next topic on the table, about subscribing to what we do and how they can join us at the end, because we'd have a spare chair over here for the Fans Forum. Yeah, so you can get involved in the Fans Forum segment. Just drop your comment or question in the live chat on Facebook or YouTube. We'll get you involved. And yeah, be sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You know, we've been getting your your content is out on Instagram. All these videos are blowing up and people are asking questions. Do you have a live stream? When can we tune in? You know, so spread the word, share the love um, and let people know about Hacksaw's headlines every Monday and Thursday at 3 p.m. Pacific. And check my website, LeeHacksawHamilton.com. And remember, as John says, subscribe and (laughs) share uh, because we're we're cracking two thousand subscribers in just under nine months which is kind of moving at warp speed here so we we invite you to be part of it and check my website too because it's all written content leehacksawhamilton.com on we go let's talk football okay so this is all about the the mountain west conference and san diego state is, is there's still scuffling here right there's been no solution uh and now they're both really dug in in a beachhead San Diego State asked for information, asked for some special things to happen. If they're going to elect to leave the Mountain West Conference, they wanted a one-month extension before they actually have to decide. They wanted to sit and talk to the Mountain West about the structure of the $17 million payout, the, quote, exit fee. Uh, Mountain West, I thought, reacted very unfairly towards San Diego State. They filed back and said there will be no exceptions. This is the bylaw of the conference. If you're going to elect to leave, you need to do it by June 30th. It costs you $17 million. Uh, give us the money. Uh, there won't be any renegotiation of the structure. I think it leaves a really bad taste in the mouth at San Diego State. I think it's grossly unfair for this conference to treat the flagship university. What this university has done academically, what it has done athletically, what it has done as a financial resource stream to the Mountain West is really special. And you're treating them like they're doing something wrong and they're doing something illegal. At the end of the day, it's all about money and it's dollars and cents and it's exposure. At the end of the day, the Mountain West TV deal gives them $3 million. If they can get into the Pac-12, it gives them $37 million per year. Do you know what that revenue stream does to that athletic yeah. program? I mean, it's absolutely phenomenal. Uh, I, would, I would think that San Diego State just writes the letter and then hopes or asks the Pac-12, give us a commitment now. So we will have the step that we can make as we exit this as badly as these people in Colorado Springs are treating them. I'm a little bit surprised uh, on social media, and I'm a little bit surprised with the responses I get. People who follow San Diego State, for some reason, don't seem to be in a rage about this. I'm in a rage, and I didn't even go to that school. (laughs) Well, it's tough because the Aztecs have brought a lot of prestige to the Mountain West. Exactly. I mean, without without the Aztecs, not just in basketball, making the NCAA championship, but the football program has been pretty darn good, too. Um, But I have a question for you, Lee. So if if they paid $17 million to get out of the Mountain West before the end of this month— 
do they still lose out on revenue that came from their performance in the NCAA tournament? No, I think that that, that is all what's called shared units, and everybody gets a cut of that pie. That you know, the Wyoming's and the San Jose states, and they all get a cut of that pie. But I don't think the Mountain West would then take that six million check that they were supposed to get. Uh, they, I think they would get that revenue because quote they earned it. Yeah. Now they'd have to turn around and write the check for seventeen million and. Off we go there. So that's that's a story. We'll see where it goes in the next calendar week as we march towards June 30th. Now, we got the other story. This is kind of evolving. Yeah, Matt Ariza, I mean, we were just talking about it before we got started on the podcast. You saw him on HBO. He said he had a lot to say. I saw the. I saw it was almost like a documentary. It was a sit-down interview with Andrea Kramer. Uh, it involved the police officials. It involved the lawyer who was suing Matt Ariza. And he was really outspoken. Um, and he had said some things on HBO I had never, ever heard or seen written. And I'll just give you just very briefly the quotes. Uh, he said, I was stupid. What I did in that 15-minute window of my life at that party, I was stupid. That's the first time I've ever heard him admit that he was dumb for what he did. Uh, quote, the woman came on to me. Quote, it was her intention to have sex. Quote, she told me she had sex with other men. Quote, she said she was of legal age. It was consensual. We went back to the house after we had two sexual liaisons. She was not drunk. She was not unstable. That's what he said. He turned around and he condemned the media. I saw a video clip of Stephen A. Smith, who was screaming on ESPN, gang rape, you're going to jail. Judge and jury on ESPN, mm-hmm. Loudmouth. I thought that was really unfair. Saw another film clip of Pat McAfee, internet sensation. Mm-hmm. Almost the exact sentiments convicting him before there was any evidence. So he was really upset at that. Uh, he said, you don't have to believe me, Matariza. He said, believe the police interviews, 35 witnesses, nine different videos. Believe the documentation the police have from the witnesses that this girl was going around that house saying, telling men to F me. Believe me, I was never in that house. There's no video. There's no conversation. All of her friends said I was never in that house. Believe me. And you could almost get the feel. He had to bite his tongue to say more. But he said, they robbed me of my name. They robbed me of my reputation. They robbed me of my job. And then he said, I am suing that lawyer for defamation of character because that lawyer went on social media and kind of convicted him before the investigation was ever completed, before the information was ever made available. It was it was pretty strong stuff and pretty specific stuff. I mean, if he's suing people, why would you not go after Stephen A. Smith? I thought, well, I saw what Stephen A. Smith said. I thought that was just bleeping irresponsible. Yeah, it was tough. I mean, especially we, you know, gotten to know Matt Ariza as he rose up and became the punk god. But I'll tell you what, it's interesting that he is fighting back so aggressively. Usually in these situations, even if the guy maybe wasn't at fault, they typically like to sort of fade, let the story fade away. But Ariza is standing up for this and and he's innocent. You know, it was consensual. If, If we believe everything that they've said, he should be standing up for his own reputation and his own credibility because he's got a big time career right in front of him. And a lot of those teams have been spooked to sign him. Andrea Kramer talked to six different NFL general managers and just got a wide variety of anonymous responses. One said, I have a 14-year-old daughter. I could not sign him. Another said, the women in my front office would be really upset if I signed him. Another said, what's the truth that's going to come out in the lawsuit if it ever goes front and center? Another one said, there are more punters in the world than there are NFL teams. (laughs) Well, go go get a punter on any street corner. Yeah, and and the most realistic one was Joe Douglas, the only one that identified himself, the general manager of the New York Jets, who worked him out, who indicated if we have injuries, we will bring him on board, probably on our developmental squad, and that may be the sentiment other places. If Cincinnati suffers a catastrophic injury at punter, or it happens in Detroit or Seattle, maybe he'll get an opportunity. But you're, John, I think you're really correct. He's really trying to rally his career 
and question the credibility of the people that made judgments. You know, back when this first broke, I remember on our podcast, you kind of looked at me and I could read your eyes. (laughs) We were talking about a pretty touchy issue. But back then, I said, there's a lot of gray area here we don't know about. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of he said, she said we don't know about. Let this thing progress through the probe and the investigation. And then finally... They didn't press charges because there was, I think, too much gray area and there were conflicting statements. And so we'll see where it goes. But I'm sure you'll be able to find the HBO Brian Gumble series. It just it aired uh, last night. And you can be the judge of what he was saying. But I just kind of gave you the capsule summary. Yeah, I'm going to check that out. But, you know, he, he's innocent. They dropped charges. Meanwhile, there are other guys that have gone to jail and and they've been you know back in the, in the league. So hopefully these teams give him a shot, a second opportunity. Remember back in the day, the Raiders used to always take some of these so-called not saying Arise is a bad character guy, but they would. The Raiders would take those guys. Do they, they don't really do that anymore, do they? No, because these guys get disciplined by the league. Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of discipline that gets handed out for anything and everything. You know, Tyreek Hill, Miami's in trouble, allegedly assaulted a guy at a marina over the weekend. Jeez. Punched his lights out. Now, is he going to be charged? Supposedly, he's going to be charged for assault. Well, that goes, mm. that goes in front of the league. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and all these guys who create minor stupid things, create major incidents, do something horrific like Henry Rugg of the Raiders, the 153-mile-an-hour drunk driving Uh. accident that killed a woman. The league deals with these guys as they go along. So uh, I don't think Arise is going to get disciplined by the league because he was never, ever charged and, quote, it was consensual. Okay, that's a topic on the table. Let's go from football. We've got something different here because— we got NBA draft a couple hours from now, and a week from tonight, we got the NHL draft. The NHL draft. I mean, I'm fired up. The Ducks are like a promising organization here. They got the new coach. I mean, what are you seeing here, Lee? Well, here's the story, because the Ducks are drafting number two in the draft, for the hockey fans out there. They're going to get the chance to get one of the top young forwards, either from the collegiate ranks or from Europe. And what I confirmed, and I was not aware of this, because the rules as to how the goals get access to players, the rules have changed. The two players that the Ducks are looking at, Adam Fantilli, brilliant young, big freshman, center iceman, University of Michigan, scored 30 goals this past year as a freshman, as an 18-year-old. He is one. He'll be on the board at number uh, the second pick when the Ducks choose. Or 6'3 winger Leo Carlson, who plays in Sweden. Hmm. I think he scored 16 goals, which is pretty significant for an 18-year-old. I tried to confirm, and I finally got confirmation last night, that if either one of these guys gets drafted, signs with the Ducks, goes to training camp at Anaheim, if they don't make the major league roster at age 19, they can come and play here. Now, if you're a Canadian junior player, where the bulk of the other kids come from, you have to go back to the junior club if you don't make the big team. Hmm. So they don't come here until they turn 20. Then they can come to play in the American Hockey League. So this is unique. If if either one of these kids, if it's not Fantilli, if it's not Carlson, either one of these kids don't make it up there, they could be assigned to come here and begin their pro careers. And you take that... That number one pick, which is really high, and you add it, they've got five defensemen coming in who are now age 20 or are Europeans at age 19 that can come to San Diego, I think are going to start the season in San Diego. I just think the potential of what the goals could be is going to be spectacular. And I, when I cover the press conferences, both with the, the Ducks' new head coach, Greg Cronin, and obviously Matt McIlvain, the goals' new coach, I was so impressed and I wrote a column, and I think I've said it to you. Uh, I think the losing has ended in Anaheim, and losing it was a really bad season last year. Here were the goals. Losing has ended in San Diego. This is fascinating news, the fact that whoever that number one pick is is going to come here or could come here. That's exciting for San Diego hockey fans and for Ducks fans, too, especially if they make the, the big-time roster. But, Lee, let me ask you, how— if you look at some of the all-time greats in hockey, did they break into the NHL when they were teenagers? Guys like Gretzky? 
Oh, Gretzky did. Chris Gretzky cut his teeth in the World Hockey Association as an 18-year-old. Mm. See, the NHL had old rules that you could not come unless you were 20 or 21. Well, the World Hockey Association came into existence, and that's how they laid their foundation. They went after NHL goaltenders, and they signed a bunch of them. And they went out, and they signed all these 18- and 19-year-old kids. Gretzky, Mark Messier, uh, all the guys that wound up going to uh, Edmonton that made the Oilers so so tremendous. So that's how the World Hockey Association announced its presence by signing these guys to contracts that the NHL would not allow their teams to negotiate on. So it, it, now the rules have evolved, and it's been a big discussion of late. Should we put the draft age back to 20? Because is it really right to have an 18- and 19-year-old who's not ready to go play? And do you want to strip the junior teams of all their stars, because that's a business, too. I mean, you're in Kingston, Ontario, and that franchise is is the the team in that community. And all these other places across the Ontario Hockey League, the Quebec League, and the Western Hockey League. So the NHL keeps going back and forth. What should the draft age be? Should we have an exception rule where you can draft an 18-year-old and send him to the minors? Uh, or do we keep it intact so we... We keep the junior teams, the Quebec Rim parts, et cetera, really viable by sending their superstar back at age 18 and 19 mm-hmm. to play one more year in junior. So the rules have changed. They continue to negotiate that. Okay, from hockey, uh, pro golf tour continues to be a topic on the table. Yeah. I mean, have they reconciled? Have they come together officially yet, the LIV and the PGA? Uh, PGA Tour is in Connecticut this weekend for the Travelers Championships uh, on Wednesday. The PGA's leadership, uh, not not their CEO because he's got health issues. He stepped away for about a month. But the two leaders of the PGA uh, have stepped in and met with the players this week. And they just flat out lectured the players uh, because the players' response over the merger with LIV has been really negative. And their, their comments were uh, in the lecture, we have a business model. We are forming a different venture. With, with the European tour and with LIV's financing, it's going to be called New Co, New Company. Hmm. <laughs> New Co is going to run everything business-related uh, to the PGA Tour, money contracts, merchandising, marketing, sponsorships, etc. But they told them, PGA is going to run that. We are going to run New Co, the business side. And by the way, you guys who are loyal to us, you're going to get a cut of the profits from New Co. By the way, we are running all the golf tournaments here, abroad, and anything new we create, it'll be out the, under the PGA flag. Uh, so th- they were just really strong, uh, and it's, and they said, we don't have the formula yet, but please understand the guys who defected to LIV are going to pay an entrance fee to buy their tour card back because they violated their tour card. So it was, it was rather a strong lecture from the PGA, but... I'm sure there's a lot going on behind the scenes about the absolute structure of what they're going to do and who's going to run it on behalf of the PGA. And I think more data will come out. And I I do think the blow up and everything that that came out initially has kind of subsided. I think there's been a cooling off period. Yeah, well, I think people are realizing how much money's on the table. Oh, you know, enormous so, volumes. So they're they're looking at that. But you know, it's funny. You know, we talk about is this a merger? Is it a takeover? A buyout? They even in the corporate world, they talk about mergers, but they're never really even Stephen 50-50 mergers. See, once we get a look at that org chart of this new organization, who's the president, who's the CEO, if they're coming from LIV or PGA, that will tell the story of who the top dog is. Well, Jay Monahan, who's on a health leave of absence right now, is the CEO of the new group, mm-hmm. New Co. He will be the CEO. Now there'll be LIV people beneath them. I don't think Greg Norman's going to be part of this equation at all. <laughs> but, you know, they tried to put the, the players' anger and their worries to rest by st- just structurally, structurally announcing this was not a takeover. This was a merger, and we're calling all the shots going forward. So it'll be fascinating to see if this kicks in for 2024, or do they need another window to get it all done correctly? And maybe it won't launch till 2025, but... Uh, to me, the LIV paid money. They paid $3 billion to make this merger come into place. So 
that's where we are. One other topic on the table, and then get ready. Hey, you're watching on the live streams. Get off your ass and get on <laughs> and send us a question. Fans Forum is just around the corner, but we got soccer to talk about. Yeah, I mean, Megan Rapinoe, you know, the U.S. women's team is coming together here. You know, I've been seeing even Taylor Swift is kind of pumping up the team. Well, we've been talking extensively about Team USA soccer and obviously Greg Berhalter and Christian Pulisic and the Stars and what happens in the Nations League and the Gold Cup tournament for the men is just around the corner. Lost in all the conversation is the fact that July 20th, Team USA begins play in the World Cup. Awesome. Going to be down under. Now, I'm not real good with math, so I don't know what the time zone difference is, but they're going to play in Melbourne, Australia, and in Auckland, New Zealand. That's where the Women's World Cup is going to be held. So they've just announced this roster. We know marquee stars, the great veterans that have made women's soccer really special. Alex Morgan is going to lead Team USA. Megan Rapinoe at age 35 is coming back. Julie Ertz has come back from injuries. And a bright young 18-year-old speed goal scorer, Alyssa Thompson. Those are the four really recognizable names. Tough part is they have lost uh, their captain. She's not going to be able to play with a knee injury. Uh, The other unique thing is the marquee names somehow going to be complemented by 14 rookies who've never stepped on the pitch in international oh, World wow. Cup competition. 14 young U.S. women will be part of that roster. Uh, and they'll play in Group E. Uh, they will play Portugal. They will play Vietnam. They'll pay, play the Dutch in Group E play. And it all starts, circled your calendar. I don't know what you're doing, but I know what I'm doing on July 20th. Our first round game, Team USA in action in the World Cup. So fascinating going forward. Yeah, that's going to be a lot of fun. I mean, following the women's team because the women have come so far, you know. Now, are they the favorites going into this? I know they've won a number of cups. Well, they won back-to-back World Cups. And, I mean, they've been knocking at the door prior to that. I think they have have to be viewed as upper echelon, probably the one that come out of their group. But boy, you got so many young players, new goaltender, and 14 rookies. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of people who've never walked on that pitch and actually done that in pressure times. But it's Team USA, and they have grown so fast and become so really good globally. And America is going to be waving the flag on July 20th. Oh, you know it. I mean, especially when the wave play over a Snapdragon, they get big crowds there. I mean, it's nice to see women's sports, particularly women team sports, really getting a lot of fans and support. So it's just going to be a great summer for soccer. Okay, ready, set, go. (laughs) Uh, Fans forum. Who's got questions? We got answers. Just fire away here, John. They're your best friends. Yeah, here we go. This is from Justin C. He says, did the Chargers hire Kellen Moore because they know he would take a low salary for an opportunity to be a head coach in the NFL Well, when they fire Staley? I'm, I'm sick of these first-timer head coaches. It wouldn't surprise. Well, Kellen Moore had accomplished a lot in Dallas. They'd been beset by injuries. Last year, I think, was a bit of an aberration. You know, the year prior... Dak Prescott put up some really good numbers, and he had suffered a really bad injury. Last year, the Cowboys' offensive line was just shredded. I mean, they they lost their left tackle, their right tackle, one of their guards. Their center had to leave football. Uh, they just weren't the same football team. Um, I guess to a degree, maybe he was forced out by Mike McCarthy, who was, I think, came to the conclusion, I want to run what I want to run, and let me call the plays and rather than him. That being said, this guy had done some really good things with Dak Prescott. So I don't I don't think there's any phony baloney here. I think this guy's on a track, fast track. He's interviewed for college jobs. He's interviewed for a couple NFL jobs. So I wouldn't condemn him yet. Um, now, he goes in and he works for Brandon Staley. Staley's turned the offense over to him. And Brandon Staley's run, I don't think they've had guys with this kind of creative juice. And he walks into a good situation. I mean, you got Justin Herbert, and you got three pretty good wide receivers. You got a pass catching tight end. You got Austin Eckler, and you got the quarterback. And you got a rebuilt offensive line where they've they've spent all these resources to get number one draft picks to play up front. I just think offensively, they're going to be dynamic. So I'm not critiquing Kellen Moore because I do think there is a track record. He's been on a faster track to become somebody's head coach. But going to another team, 
as a coordinator and bringing everything he learned in Dallas under Mike McCarthy, uh, I, I think is just positive for the Chargers offensively. Defensively, I think I've got all kinds of reservations. Well, do you think um, Kellen Moore brings in uh, an offensive playbook that's going to be dramatically different than last year? So it's going to take a while for these players to kind of ramp up? They're going to add add some some stuff with different types of route trees they run. This is what I was told. Uh, I don't think the terminology is going to change. But he got hired so early in the process that he's almost lived with Justin Herbert at the facility. That they've, He said that we both put things into the new Charger playbook. And some of it was what he did well and really liked. Some of it was what we saw in video, how he linked up with the receivers in the different routes. And some of it was my stuff that came from Dallas and the route trees and how we build what we run, whether that's throw deep, throw slants, throw outs, run the ball, play action, throw to the backs, different use of the tight end. So uh, you got you got bright minds. I mean, Kellen Moore's bright mind. No doubt Justin Herbert is brilliant, mm-hmm. maybe bleeping brilliant. <laughs> so I, I think offensively the Chargers are going to be good. So I, I, I won't subscribe to what he said about another one-and-done guy who's cheap or failed. Kellen Moore's not failed. Yeah, it's going to be fun to see how this all turns out. I mean, they're getting ready for camps here pretty soon. End of July. Yeah, it's coming fast. Okay, here's a comment from Manny. He says, do you think that today's NBA draft will be quite will be a quiet one, or are there going to be multiple trades? Rumor mill is trades everywhere. You know, uh, off the top of my head, are the Clippers going to trade Paul George? Off the top of my head. Is New Orleans going to trade Brandon Ingram? Off the top of my head, is New Orleans going to trade Zion Williamson? Off the top of my head, how's Miami going to go get a third star when everybody now has stars? Off the top of my head, is Phoenix going to find a taker for DeAndre Ayton? Off the top of my head, (laughs) what Portland said last night, does it stay in effect with Damon Lillard? Will he get traded? Off the top of my head, these rumors that are flying out of Madison Square Garden that they might trade Julius Randle or they might trade their former number pick Obi Toppin. All those kind of deals happen. So that's just up here, what I recall from what I wrote down, that could happen. And, I mean, we've seen three big trades so far in the last week. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the, the Brad Beal deal from Washington to Phoenix, the Washington deal late last night— that sent Kristaps Porzingis to Boston, which I think was a hell of a transaction. And now the third deal that just happened as we were taking the air Thursday is the Chris Paul deal to Golden State. That's three. There could be five more involving named players. And I don't, if, if the Clippers trade Paul George, wow, we're going to have something to talk about in bonus coverage on Monday? Wow. <laughs> yeah, it's going to be great. I mean, I, the NBA draft and all the drafts are just a lot of fun. You know, you <laughs> get all the, the guys out there, the analysts, and they're talking about what's going to happen, the rumors they're hearing. So it's going to be a lot of fun tonight. On we go. Got a couple more questions here, and then we'll get to social media. Yeah, this is from Emmanuel. He says, who remains as manager of their respective teams next year, Bob Melvin or Dave Roberts? Both teams are struggling. Both. Both stay. Yeah. Now, Melvin and hitting coaches and front office and analytic people, they better figure out why these guys aren't hitting back to their career numbers. I mean, these are, these numbers are really grossly down. If a guy's hurt and Bogarts is banged up, I understand why he's hitting 190 in the last month because of the wrist. But I, don't, I have no understanding why Soto's not hitting 290 in Petco Park, and and why Manny is having the worst year of his career. I don't understand what's happened to Cronenworth, except scouting reports maybe have figured him out. But it is a funk that is really bad. But I don't I don't think that they're going to hit the eject button on Bob Melvin. And I think Dave Roberts is, is safe. You can't. Dave Roberts has got the highest winning percentage of any Dodger manager in history. <laughs> that includes Tommy Lasorda. That includes back in the day, Smokey Austin. Mm. But he's been beset by all these arm problems that they have. But yet the thing with the Dodgers is parked over here in this right parking space next to the parking meter. They got all these live young arms that they're sampling out of Oklahoma City. And as long as those guys don't break down, they've got they got more guys coming. 
And there's no doubt the Dodger veterans are just hitting the hell out of the ball home runs, especially the top of the batting order. So I don't think, in all honesty, I don't think any of those guys are in jeopardy. But if A.J. Preller were to hit the eject button on Bob Melvin, if this turns out to be a non-playoff season, it might be some screeching and howling in San Diego. And I'll say this, and I like A.J., and he grew up next to the town that I grew up on on Long Island, so we joke about it all the time. But if you fire this manager after the last three managers that you hired and you fired, do you think Padre Fan can trust you to hire the next guy as the right guy? Because Melvin, Tingler, Andy Green, and the way they treated Bud Black, those were all his decisions. So there'll be some accountability if this doesn't work out. Like you say, we got 100-plus games to go in a season, but like I said— they got they got to pass a lot of teams to be a wild card team. Is it, we're fickle as fans, aren't we? You know, because well, we, you we, are. Yeah. I don't know about me. I don't know what descriptive adjective or adverb you use to describe my style, but but we want results, you know. And we're frustrated as fans, and we just want to point the finger at someone and say that's the reason that they're not that they're not winning. But when Bob Melvin was hired, it was like the Padres hired. I don't know, you know, the, the best co- possible manager they could have. Well, he was accomplished. You know, and I, I remember one of the first podcasts we did, one of my phrases was, there's nothing that's going to happen to him here in San Diego that he has never, ever seen before. I mean, because he's been through adversity. He's mm-hmm. been through teams who had good payrolls and failed. He's been through the horrors of working with the Oakland Athletics and no money, uh, no running water in the stadium and all that razzmatazz. Um, now, maybe he's never had a stretch where he's had as many big-money, big-time productive players not play well. Maybe this is challenging his soul right uh, right now. But I, I thought it was the right hire because he's experienced so yeah. many things. Yeah, I mean, I'd love to be a, a fly on the wall in the clubhouse. I mean, what's your sense of what's going on behind closed doors? Do you think there's any bad juju, bad chemistry going on? I, one of my biggest fears— and 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 I witnessed this firsthand because I'm in that clubhouse all the time. I witnessed this firsthand when AJ came here and he made all those wild deals at the first winter baseball meetings when it was held downtown mm-hmm. at the at the uh, convention center. And he brought in all these guys, all these named guys who had had success. He paid a price to get them, and he paid them a price to play here, and they didn't pan out. And I got a sense because I was in that clubhouse a lot. They became independent contractors. Mm. Hey, I got my money. Did you get yours? Mm. I'm getting paid on the 1st and 15th of every month. Well, if we don't win, I'm still getting paid on the 1st and 15th. That's what really bothered me about the Matt Kemp, Justin Upton, Melvin Upton consortium. It really bothered me. Excuse me. It pissed me off Mm -hmm. to have to deal with these guys and listen to the junk they were saying when I I didn't see the passion to be a leader, etc. So it's a tough call. I hope this group does not flip into that. But I I do get an uncomfortable feeling. And I talk to other baseball people that say they've underachieved because a bunch of them don't really feel the need to do it because they already got their contract. And that's a horrible thing to say. I uh, hope it's not true. Yeah, I hope not either. Um, but, you know, maybe they're thinking, hey, he makes all these deals to get new guys in, but he's also sending guys out. So maybe they could feel a little bit, I don't know, maybe not as valued on a on a human level. I mean, certainly they're getting valued in terms of their paycheck. Hey, you can't trade guys on 10, 11, and 14-year contracts who are in the Padre batting order now. Yeah, you can't. You, this is what you have, and this is what you're going to be stuck with and have to live through. Damn, they better start winning. Okay, let's move on. you got a couple other things here you want to go on social media. <laughs> yeah, we do. We've got some good social media comments here. And let's go here. This is a Bob Huggins comment from Film at 11 on Instagram. Huggins has a huge ego. Ain't nobody talking him into rehab until he himself is ready to go. Well, he's got, he has to look in the mirror and admit he has an alcohol problem. And anybody that does it, 0.21 blood alcohol count has got an alcohol problem. He's got an addiction. And if, if he refuses to see it, then his career is over. 
I would have hoped, and John and I talked about this after the first incident a month plus ago in Cincinnati, the radio interview, that he went off on a really bad, ugly tangent. And I kept saying, who the hell does something, says stuff like that in public? <laughs> and I, and I, I remember saying, maybe he needs to be evaluated for a substance problem. And it was a substance problem because you don't blow two, 0.21 unless you're really sick. My, my only point being, and I, I said last week that, you know, maybe maybe one of his former players, and, and he was really close to Nick Van Exel, the Laker guard, and Kenyon Martin, who played up in Denver. Maybe one of them can step forward and say, I care about you, coach, because you impacted my life. I care about you. We think you need to go to rehab and go intensive rehab, and intensive rehab works if Bob Huggins is committed to work it. So does he have an ego? Yeah, has a hell of a lot of guys got ego. But obvious to me, he's got a terrible substance abuse problem. It's it's sad because I've known him since 1980. Well, isn't it interesting how so many college head coaches become like father figures for their their players? And there's this amazing love that can exist. And it would be kind of special to see it turn the other way where that love was redirected to Huggins. Because, yeah, he clearly needs some help. And obviously, he did not get guidance, nor did he get pressure from the athletic director or the president, Dr. Gordon G. at West Virginia, because they could have stepped in if they perceived. And how how could you be around him and understand everything that was going on in that program and not see how he acted or how he treated people or not understand alcoholism? Because that's I'm sorry, that comes that's part of your job as the head of the athletic department or the university is to help solve whatever problems develop in everywhere. I don't care where you are. Mm -hmm. There are problems within everybody's athletic department, social, physical, mental, psychological, substance abuse problems. As an AD or as a president of a university, the CEO of the school, you need to be able to guide somebody if you find that they've really fallen off the track. Yeah, yeah, it's a shame. So let's let's move on here. We got some more social media comments. This one's uh, an Instagram comment from Daniel Alexis talking about the NFL gambling problem. Hey, they've been ignoring illegal substances for years. Steroids, HEH. They ignored brain trauma for decades. They have ignored having lawbreakers in the league for years. I'm sure they're going to sweep this under the rug. I don't know that they'll sweep it under the rug because they are really taking proactive moves. Uh, at the just-completed OTAs, they had a league official meet with every roster player in a group team meeting, and they ran a video, and they came up with six key points that they presented to every players about what you can do and what you cannot do. And that, that includes not being part of sports books. That includes not betting uh, from the facility or anything while you're with the team, and obviously not betting on NFL games. So I think each each thing uh, carries a different agenda. Uh, you know, you have to deal with the Players Association, too. You just can't mandate this law. You know, that that's why there was a long time for them to get in the collective bargaining agreement drug testing, blood testing for HGH, uh, they had to really negotiate the extensive amount of discipline they would hand out to players as it relates to guns, domestic abuse, really bad stuff. Uh, I think the league, the league ignored concussions for a long time, and I, uh, I will go to my grave. I firmly believe a couple of doctors of teams who knew what was going on found their conscious, and they're the ones that I think there is a paper trail about the NFL covering up potential brain damage with concussions. And these doctors went and I think provided information to the union, which led to the lawsuit, which led to the wake up in the morning one day and there's an $875 million payout for concussions to players. So the league's been dragged into some of it. The other of it's been dragged out because it has to go through the union and it's got to be a joint decision there. So it's a complicated answer, but I, I think the league is doing much better now taking care of the players they have to because a league is not Roger Goodell. I'm sorry. The league is not Spanos. The league is not Robert Kraft. The league is the Tom Brady's of the world, which the fans identify with. So you got to protect them and you got to guide them and you have to discipline some of them along the way. Well, considering your long history as an NFL broadcaster and doing all the, you know, in sports for decades, 
Have you ever gotten a whiff that some games are fixed or that there's no. been some funny business going on? No, no, not at all. I've, you would never go there because why would anybody do that? Why would you put your career and your contract in jeopardy? Why would the league ever sanction anything like that? No, not at all. You know, you think back decade ago, maybe 15 years ago, how aghast we were when we found out there was an NBA referee, Tim Donahue, that was betting on games mm-hmm. with, quote, inside information. That, and the league responded really quickly to that. So now these are young, stupid guys who've got a lot of time on their hands. they got a lot of jack in their pockets and looking to do something and and make mistakes. They won't make mistakes now because the league sent a different executive into every one of the 32 camps last week, and they held seminars with the players. The players now know what the rule is and now know what the penalty will be. And we're not done with this league pro because I think I think it's the tip of the iceberg. I think some more junk is going to show up. Yeah, so I guess they're, they're, they're now the law, right? Yeah, I am the law. Exactly. <laughs> okay, here's another comment here. This is about PGA LIV. The war is over from uh, Pinkalicious. He says, sorry, Smacksaw. The PGA Tour did not win. They look like hypocrites and their players are livid. The real winners are the LIV and the Saudis because they made the PGA Tour cave in and blink first. Fact is, the PGA Tour lied to the fans and the public about their principles and took the money anyway. They will lose fans and viewers because they are now sleeping with the enemy, the boogeyman they were telling everyone about. They made their bed and now they have to lie in it. Hope that blood money is worth it. My goodness. (laughs) You have a tough time hanging with your friends. They start calling you pink. I totally disagree. Uh, LIV, $3 billion. That's what they had to pay to, quote, get into the fraternity with the PGA. What's the end result? Greg Norman's not running it. The Saudi fund is not running the new global PGA. Nuco, the company that's being formed, will be run by PGA executives. And they'll plant their flag in every event and every market. It will be a PGA event. And LIV will will have been good for the players because the guys that they bribed to come get to keep the first year money. And the guys that didn't come, the McElroys of the world, they're going to get rewarded because they're going to get, quote, loyalty bonuses as part of the Nuco operation pink that's my explanation <laughs> i mean what else can you say i think it'll, the proof will be in the pudding when they, these these executives come together we see what this new co is about see what the players feel about it all hopefully they find a way to make it come together okay you got one more good he- uh, note here one more item on fans yeah. forum this is an interesting one to me because i know you run these these twitter polls and i think they're great and one of them you dropped out there is this, do you like the ghost runner at second base to start extra inning games and the fans pretty much uh, two to one don't like the ghost runner that's interesting um i like the ghost runner because it creates opportunity for strategy put the ball in play uh, and, you know, with the wear and tear factor on pitching staffs, you can't have a 15-inning game. It destroys your pitching staff, and arms are so fragile now in the game. I think the most of the people uh, like it. Uh, USA Today just ran a poll, came out on Wednesday. They interviewed 100 of the top names in baseball and asked them about the new rules that have been instituted, uh, the shift, the ghost runner, the pitch clock, uh, and the, the poll was like five to one in favor of of the new rules because it. I think it protects the players. I think it it obviously speeds up the game, which is good. And I think there's a lot more strategy. And I'll tell you, starting with a guy at second base in the tenth inning or the eleventh inning or the twelfth inning, yeah, there's pretty good pressure points there as to what you're going to do and how do your pitcher handle it. And I. Maybe I'm in a minority, but I tend to think I like what they've done to the game. Yeah, I like the rules. I, I think this is a good rule because I remember now this is kind of a crazy uh, uh, comparison. But when my daughter was playing softball, they used to play this way. They called it the international tiebreaker where they when in extra innings, they put a runner at second. And back then, I mean, granted, we're dealing with 10 and 12 year old girls, but 
the first play they would always do is they'd lay down a bunt and advance that runner from second to third. You rarely see that in Major League Baseball. And sometimes I wonder if they really should do that, you know, just to try to advance the runner because anything can happen to get that runner coming home from third. But it seems like a lot of the testosterone kicks in and these guys all want to hit a bomb and they're swinging for the fences rather than playing small ball. Yeah. And, and you know, they'll try to evolve the game. Now, now we've just come through really bad experiences with catchers blocking the baseline and the oh, interpretation, geez. and don't get me started on that. <laughs> Although I, I tend to think that what goes around comes around, because I happen to think in the Padre-Tampa Bay game over the weekend when Manny Margot got taken out at home plate, it sure looked like Nola was really blocking the plate mm-hmm. before the ball got there, and they never called it. Right. And then this, this interpretation of the rule in the Giant game I thought was so far-fetched because the runner was so far up the line and then the ball got there and here's the catcher just waiting to apply the tag. I don't know that Sanchez was blocking it. Was his foot over the line waiting for the ball? Yeah. But the runner was, I swear, John was 15 feet up the baseline. You know, and the alternative that I saw in a a White Sox game early in the week, John, you're going to stand in front of home plate and block me? I'm going to bulldoze you. Now, I might get hurt doing it, but I'm going to knock the ball and knock you into next week, and I'm going to touch the plate. Now, guys, they don't want guys doing that because of the, the severity of the injuries. I mean, this whole rule kind of came to, came to be because of Buster Posey's very bad ankle injury years and years ago that knocked him out for a whole year. But I think I like the bulk bulk of the rules. But, hey, you could tell me I'm wrong, but don't argue with me. I'm a talk show host. <laughs> yeah, the that was awful last night when, when that call was made. Because to your point, he was up the line. The whole point of the rule is to protect the catcher because they don't want a Pete Rose, Ray Fossey incident at home plate. Uh, but, you know, sure enough, San Diego sports curse kicks in. That run scores. Next two guys get base hits. I mean, that should have been a 2-1 to one Padre victory. It ended up being a 4-2 to two loss. Yeah, the interpretation of the rule is a gray area there that I didn't buy. But I think for the most part, the rules rules really added zest uh, to the games. And a guy out at second base in the 10th inning, I, I buy that. Hey, listen, we hope you've enjoyed our regular Thursday live stream podcast. We invite you to tell all your friends about everything that we are doing. We're here Thursdays. We do bonus podcasts on Monday. We put a ton of topics on the table. Please share. Tell everybody about what we're doing. Give us a thumbs up. Give us a five-star rating if you can, because that really helps us. And if you haven't subscribed, pal, we're almost to 2,000 in eight months, which is a phenomenal number. So who would like to be 1999 and 2,000 going forward? John, have yourself a great sports weekend. We'll catch you come bonus time on Monday. Looking forward to it, Lee. Thanks for being with us on Hacksaw's Headlines. Join us again for Hacksaw's Headlines on YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. And find the audio version on your favorite podcast app. Touchdown, San Diego! For more content, go to LeeHacksawHamilton.com.